healthy and uh, productive way. Thank you. First of all, special thank you to the wine ribs, not only for bringing me out, but also when we wrote the book, so my wife was obviously involved in the, in the writing of the book, and before we went to print, there was only one couple that we sent the book to, other than the people who were writing Ascamas, and that was the wine rib family. The wine ribs are, are people who, anyone who knows them knows that they are people who appreciate and understand the sensitivity of how other people feel and are handling things. They had their own struggle with this as well, and they're very special people, and it's really an honor to be speaking here. So tonight I want to take you on a journey. We're going to go through three different topics. We're going to go through the storyline we went through. We're going to talk about why I wrote this book and what I hope to accomplish with it. And then we'll talk about some challenges and how we, in general, any challenge a person has, how they can strive to overcome it. But before we talk about my journey, I just want to share that in our personal journey, you're going to hear a story of a lot of disappointment, but a lot of hope as well. And it's important to acknowledge that not everyone's story ends that way. And I know that because I counsel couples from around the world, and unfortunately, there are many couples that do not have a happy ending. And it's important to acknowledge and recognize that the pain that they go through is really unimaginable. But our journey begins, we got married about nine years ago. And actually, our first child was born a year later. And like many people in life, we just figured, okay, this is how life works. When you want something, you go for it and it happens. And we all have this in our lives. We have these ideas, this vision, this dream. This is what my life's going to look like. I'm going to get married at this age, have kids at this age, and this is what my life is going to look like. And unfortunately, we all know at a certain point we realize that that's not how life works. And Hashem purposely puts us in positions where we have to overcome things and push ourselves in order to maximize our potential and what we can accomplish in this world. And we slowly began to realize this as we were now living in Yerushalayim, we had a baby, and we realized a few months later that life was not going to be as simple as we had assumed it was. And I went to meet with my Rebbe, I was doing smicha at the time by Rav Yitzhak Berkowitz with Rebbe Yamin. And I went to meet with him and I asked him what we should do. I told him that we were trying for a few months. Medical advice is that after six, six months, after already having a child, is recommended to go seek medical attention. So should we do that or should we wait? And he said, go right ahead. If the medical guidance says to go ahead, that's what you should do. So we went in Yerushalayim, we went to the doctor over there. And there's a major difference though between the system there and the system here. The system in Israel is a socialized healthcare system, which means that you have two ends of the same sword. On the one hand, I don't think I paid a shekel the entire time we were there. We went through treatment there for about a year. I don't think we ever got a bill. But on the flip side, when the government is funding the treatment you're going through, they're gonna drag their feet. And they're not gonna wanna be paying tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, to be able to go through this process quicker because they'd rather that eventually it works out without that intervention. So we were there for about a year going through treatment there, but unfortunately the treatment that they did there was minimal. And at that point we were leaving Israel, we were about a year into this journey and we had nothing to show. And we moved at that point to Atlanta. I had taken a job as a rabbi in a Kirov shul or a Kirov operation there in Brookhaven, Georgia and we needed to look for a clinic. One of the most fundamental differences between our journey that was gonna be in Atlanta versus in Israel 
was that now you're potentially paying tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Because the way the treatment works in America is that almost all of it is considered an extra treatment. It's not considered medical, although it is slowly starting to shift. But that means that when you go into a clinic for an appointment and they bill you X amount, you have to pay the bill right then and there. There's no insurance. There's no one helping you pay the bill. And therefore, when you're picking a clinic, you want to make sure you have the absolute best clinic for what you need. So we got there to Atlanta, and in Atlanta, it's a big city, and there were four clinics right near us. So we looked into it, spoke to a bunch of people. I spoke to some of the Rabbanim in Atlanta, and ultimately, we were told there's this amazing doctor. His name is Dr. Danny Shapiro. So call up his office, and I asked him, this is in August. We had just moved to Atlanta for Elsman, and I call up the office, and I say, I have two questions. First of all, When's your next appointment? And second of all, would the doctor be willing to call me back? I would like to speak to the doctor before making an investment of tens of thousands of dollars. And they told me, they said, your next appointment is in mid-March. This is in August. And our doctors don't call patients. So I said, okay. I made the appointment for March. And now I was obviously at a loss because we were hoping to go through treatments immediately and realize our dreams and our hopes and now we were stuck waiting potentially seven months. So I called up this other clinic. There was one other clinic that people had mentioned they had been to. And I call it up, it's called Shady Grove. It's, I think, the largest umbrella fertility clinics in the, in the world, so people here may have heard of it. And I call up Shady Grove Atlanta, and I have the same two questions. When's your next appointment? And can a doctor call me back? And they said, sure, we have an appointment next week. And our doctor will call you later today. I said, wow, okay, this sounds great. And sure enough, I was pretty shocked, but the doctor actually called me back that day. And I told him what we were going through, that we had been going through treatments in Israel, they had done very minimal treatments, and we discussed the different prognosis, what he thought we would do. And then I said to him, I said, can I ask you something? I know a lot of people do not want to have multiples. So when a person goes through IVF, I'll, I'll explain a little more about the process soon, but very often, the doctors have the ability to put in multiple embryos, which is why a lot of people who go through treatment end up with twins or even triplets. But a lot of patients don't want that. A lot of patients are very nervous. Twins is a very complicated pregnancy. So I said to this doctor, we specifically would want multiples. Would you help us make that happen? And the doctor says to me, how old is your wife? And my wife at the time was 23. So I said, 23. And the doctor starts to laugh. He says, you think you're having twins when your wife's in her 20s? If you want to have twins, find another clinic. So at this point, we have either one clinic that's not available for seven months, and I can't speak to the doctor, or this other clinic that we can get an appointment the next week, but he's insistent he will not help us try to have multiples. So I called up Rav Yitzhak Berkowitz, I called up my rabbi in Yerushalayim, and I asked him what we should do. And he said that, listen, you may as well go ahead with this doctor. If you become pregnant, you're not going to be upset. And if you're still not pregnant in March, so at that point, you can always transition to the other clinic. So that's what we did. We started with this clinic, Shady Grove Atlanta, and we had our first appointment the next week. So I want to take a few moments, though, now to explain some of what goes on in the world of IVF and infertility treatment. So if anyone here has ever watched, there are documentaries that show how a natural pregnancy occurs for someone who doesn't need any form of treatment. If you watch these films, you can see 
that the amount of steps that have to line up perfectly is enormous. It's incredible that anybody can ever become pregnant naturally because it's literally thousands of things have to line up at the exact moment for each one to happen. So when a person goes through IVF, which is basically the doctors trying to recreate the reproductive system outside of a woman's body with additional stimulation, so at that point, they have to do the same thing. They have to replicate all of these steps at the exact moment. So you, and what ends up happening is you can be going through it and you can think, this is great, we've already gotten to step 25, everything's going so great. And then boom, step 26 doesn't work out and the whole thing is scrapped. Or you could think this looks terrible and suddenly, oh my gosh, it may happen. And it's a constant roller coaster of ups and downs, day by day, minute by minute. There are times that you could have to go into the clinic twice in a day. You can go once in the morning and then they call you, oh, we realized that something's slightly different than what we had thought. And you could have to go back again that same day. So it's an incredible roller coaster. And just so everyone understands the process, does anyone know, if you already know the answer, then don't share. Does anyone want to guess how much a typical IVF round costs? Anyone have any, any guess? How much? 20. That was a good guess. You didn't know that. You're guessing. Okay. <laughs> so IVF typically costs, but now they actually, it's, it's impressive. They're able to lower the cost now with different factors that they've been able to create. But it typically costs at a minimum between fifteen dollars and $25,000 at a minimum. And there's no insurance. You go in for the appointment, you pay the bill, you go again the next day, you pay the bill again for the next day. Over and over and over, tens of thousands. I know many people who have spent well over $100,000 because each thing adds up and different things that are needed can be more expensive. And the process is an incredibly invasive process. A lot of people think that it's different pills and different types of medications, but it's actually hundreds of injections. And when I say injections, actually I still can remember vividly, the way it comes, it, it arrives in like a, a box, almost like a suitcase, it's in a big box, and many of the injections you actually have to create. Like think your, your science class when you were a kid, literally in your house. So mixing water and the medicine and the injection, changing the needles, and it's an incredibly complicated process on top of everything you're already going through. So you're overwhelmed by the financial pressure, the emotional pressure of, am I gonna have a child? And what else is going on during that process? The physical pressure, you have to actually create all these different medical injections that are gonna be used. And the other thing that's incredibly unique about it is that generally when people go through infertility, no matter how many people they're surrounded by that are also going through it, they feel alone. And I'll tell you an incredible story. At one point in our journey, so we decided we wanted to reach out. We had about seven friends who we were able to guess were likely struggling with infertility as well. So I reached out to these six or seven friends and I said to them, listen, we're going through IVF. I don't know if you are, but if you are, would you wanna be part of a group that we would all come together and we would either learn together, daven together, we would do something for this group of friends. And one of them said, yes, I'm very interested. And I said to this friend, I said, do you know, is there anyone else in your circle or anyone else in your community who you think would gain from this? I'm happy to add more people if they would benefit. And he said to me, I don't actually think there's anyone in the entire Baltimore, he lived in Baltimore at the time, I don't think there's anyone else in Baltimore going through this. 
Now, the crazy thing about that is not that that's what he thought. The crazy thing is that I only messaged five or six friends. Another one of the friends lived in the same building as him. And this is a small Baltimore apartment complex with probably six families. So another person in his same building was someone else who we had grown up with, also no children, and yet he couldn't see it because it's an, a process that is so overwhelming and so emotionally exhausting that people can go through and they feel so alone. And that's another thing that's incredibly difficult. And keep in mind, the journey I'm describing is secondary infertility. We had our first child already. So you can't even imagine what it's like when someone doesn't have a child and they're going through that. So that's really what that process is in a nutshell. So at this point, back to our journey, we started this process with this doctor and we started going through it month after month after month, tweaking medications, changing the injections, all sorts of things. And eventually we finally were ready to do a transfer. So we had finally got the embryos that we, were, that we needed and we said to the doctor, please, can you put in more than one embryo? We wanna have twins. Doctor says, no, there's no way. If you wanna have twins, find another clinic. So, okay, what are we supposed to do? So he puts in the one embryo and at that point, there's what's known as the two week wait. So there's two weeks where there's absolutely nothing you can do and you wait until after the two weeks when you can take a pregnancy test and find out if it worked. And of course, during those two weeks, there's nothing that you can think of other than, did it finally work? After these years of treatment, is it finally something that worked? And of course, we'll, we'll never forget the moment we were, we were in different places, whatever reason, when, it, when we got the results. And unfortunately, they called and they said, you're not pregnant. And the emotion of such a thing, when you've invested tens of thousands of dollars, years of time, watching all your friends and siblings all have child after child after child, is overwhelming. And again, we sat down with the doctor. Interestingly enough, the only free appointment this clinic gives is the consolation appointment. So if a transfer failed, you get one free appointment, they sit down with you, and I sat down with this doctor, and I said, okay, we should probably change something, it didn't work. He said, no, no, everything's gonna be fine, we're gonna stick with this protocol. And again, we're trying to convince him, put in more than one, no way. You find another clinic if you want more than one. So he puts in one, and now we, again, we have our two week wait. And just to keep in mind, it sounds like this is a quick journey. This was about three years and a little bit, this, this journey that I'm describing. And at that point, it was the, the end of the two week wait, and we knew this time we were gonna be, try to be as busy as possible. We didn't wanna be, be, have free time, we didn't wanna get derailed by any negative news. So we just went through a regular day, and the doctor calls, the doctor says this time, you're pregnant. But keep in mind, that does not mean that it's time to get excited because once you've been through any trauma of anything like that, whether it's pregnancy loss, miscarriage, infertility, any of those things, then you have such a defense mechanism preventing you from being happy because you know it's probably not gonna end up working out, something's gonna happen, it's probably a mistake. And because of that, for weeks until the first ultrasound, you're basically just a bundle of nerves. Like, what's gonna go wrong? There's no way this is actually happening. We've been, we've been through this before. We've been excited before. It's never worked out. So we wait these, there's, after the two week wait, there's, I think it's six weeks you wait until the first ultrasound. And the way it worked out, for whatever reason, the day of this ultrasound came and I had to bring our son to school the same time of, as the ultrasound was scheduled. So I go bring my son to school, then I go to Morning Seder in the Kolal, and my wife goes to this appointment. 
And in the Atlanta call, they claim it's not on purpose. There is no cell service. So you cannot make a phone call from in the Colo building. If your wife needs you, she texts you, there's Wi-Fi so she can message you or WhatsApp you. You have to go out to the street. If anyone's ever been to Atlanta, the shul is enormous. One big shul in the from community and it's enormous. So to have to walk, it could be like a five minute walk to where you get service from in front of the building. So my wife goes to this appointment, I'm sitting in Kolel, and of course I already knew there's no way this is gonna end up working out. And my wife texts me, she says, Yosef, you need to call me. And I said, I cannot do this. I'm not going to the street. I'm not walking five minutes up the block to call you to find out that there's no heartbeat. I, I don't need to do it. Just tell me what happened, we'll figure it out. And I'll never forget, she sends me a picture that says baby A and baby B. And what had happened was the embryo, the one embryo that the doctor insisted on putting in, split. And Baruch Hashem, we ended up having identical twins. And the lesson was such a powerful message for us that throughout this journey, the whole time, why are we suffering like this? Doctors said we're only having one anyway. And then we see that all these times we limit ourselves and how we think, what's going to happen? The doctor said this, my friend said that. And we forget that Hashem is big enough to outweigh any of that. And it doesn't matter what the doctor says. It doesn't matter what someone else says. If the doctor says you're having one and Hashem says you're having twins, no big deal. We'll split the embryo. And it was such an incredible experience for us to see that, that after all those years of struggling and seeing all our siblings, kid after kid after kid, that we finally were able to see that blessing from Hashem, that incredible bracha of having this embryo split and have the twins. So at that point, after experiencing this, I decided to make it a point to go through, it wasn't an official journey, but a, a very unofficial journey to really make myself available for other people. And I did a lot of volunteer work and going to clinics, meeting with all the medical doctors, and ultimately I ended up deciding I was gonna write this book. And when I wrote this book, the main reason I wrote it, this is what it is, if anyone can't see, in it together, and I wrote this book, and there was only one reason really why I had wrote it, and that was because when we went through our journey, we couldn't find anything on the topic that was helpful. So, for example, in our own relationship, my wife and I handle things very differently. I like to know every single detail of what's gonna happen, when it's gonna happen, how it's gonna happen, and why it's gonna happen. And my wife just said, I don't wanna know what's happening, just do what you have to do and get me out of here. So what that meant was, Every single book on the topic, I'm not exaggerating, I ordered. I think we own like 10 books. There's only about 10 books on the, on the topic in the entire secular literature. And there's one book put out by Feldham. It's called The Third Key, if anyone's ever seen it. It's about 900 pages long and incredibly technical. It's dosages of medication, all those types of things. And I went through all these books and I didn't find any of them helpful because all of them were either complete doom and gloom, like there's no way you're ever having a child, you may as well give up and try to adopt or something like that. Or they were so technical that you couldn't appreciate what it was actually gonna mean to go through it. And all I wanted to know was what's my life gonna look like going through this new process that I don't know anything about. So when I wrote the book, the main reason I wrote it was for that purpose, that for someone going through it, they should know what to expect because the average person going through it has no idea what they're in for the first time. And they go in and I constantly hear from, from people in my own community, oh yeah, it's not a big deal, we're gonna start IVF, we'll probably be pregnant soon. And they don't realize it's not even possible 
the same sentence. Going through IVF inherently means you're not going to be pregnant soon because it takes months to go through just the basic process of getting the body ready for it. And knowing what you're going through is an incredibly empowering part of any difficult journey. So when I wrote the book, that was really what I had in mind. But when I finished the manuscript and I was going to get Haskamas for it, so I reached out to Shmuel first in Chicago. And originally he told me he doesn't have time, he's not going to be able to write it. But he said, send the manuscript, and if for whatever reason I end up having time, then I will write Askam. So I send this to him and don't hear back probably for six months. Six months later, I get a call. Hi, it's the small first. I, I, I read this manuscript, and I'm, I'm ready to write the Askam. So the way it works for many of the big yodolim when they're writing Askama is they'll tell you what to write. You either type it up or handwrite it. You send it to their gabai, and then they just sign it because they don't have time to start writing all these, these long askamas. So you write it, they approve it over the phone, and they tell you who to send it to, and then they sign it. So he starts telling me what to write for the askama, and I noticed it was very different than what the other gadolim had written. They had all written things about the person going through infertility and how it could be a resource for them. And I first started saying that I should write that this book is meant for every Jew. And I asked them, I said, like, what is the rub referring to that this is for every Jew? And he told me the following story. He said the night before, this is the night before he wrote the, this Askama, there was a wedding in Chicago. And he said the wedding was for a family. There were 10 or, or eight or 10 friends who all got married the same time in Chicago near Oshmol first. And all of them got married around the same time. And all of them but one started having children. And each of them, their families continued to grow and they got older except for this one couple. This one couple still till this, well, till that day at least, had no children. And he says, last night was the wedding of the first of that group's children. So there's this whole group of friends, a bunch of them have families, one doesn't. And the first of that next generation's wedding was the night before. And he said this guy, this one person who does not have children went to this wedding, and of course he was seated with his seven close friends who he's been friends with for 20 years. And after the wedding, he came to Rabbi first, sobbing hysterically. And Rabbi first asked him, what's going on? And he told him that this wedding for this guy. And he said, I sat at the table, and the entire time, the only thing my friends talked about was their children. For the entire wedding, for people who've known each other for 20 years. Now, obviously, we all know none of these people were doing this to be malicious with any intent. But his point I first was making is that so often, because we don't have information, we don't know how to really respond and treat people appropriately and be sensitive because we don't understand what they're going through. So the same way that if you call up a friend and you say, hey, how are you you doing today? Say, well, I'm having a really tough day because I stubbed my toe. So of course you say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. But none of us are gonna be thinking about it for more than than a few moments. Because we all know stubbing your toe is something that's unpleasant, but it's, it's something that happens and then you move on. When someone hears that their friend is struggling to have children and they have no idea what it involves, so very often they look at it the same way. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And then two minutes later, they're back to their life. They forgot about it. And because of that, he pointed out that it's important that everyone is aware of what this journey entails. Because inherently, when you know what it means when someone tells you what I'm going through infertility, I'm going through IVF, and you realize that that's something that literally is taking over their life, 
that inherently it makes you a more sensitive person to their plight. And that's what he explained. Interestingly enough, he obviously is a lot smarter than I am because of the feedback that we've gotten. The book came out about three months ago, and the overwhelming majority of feedback is from people who will write us an email or, or send us a message. Hey, read the book, had never been through this, and I could never have imagined what my sibling, my cousin, my neighbor was going through. Overwhelming majority, probably 10 to 1 against any other feedback we've gotten. So obviously that was not necessarily meant to be one of the goals, but now that that became more aware to me, that's obviously something I'm very passionate about and making that clear to people, the opportunity to know not just what goes on in their own lives, but to be able to take the time to say, you know what? I'm gonna look into what's going on in other people's lives. Even if it doesn't apply to me, I wanna know what they're going through so that I can appreciate that and be more sensitive to what they're struggling with. The third thing I wanna talk about is the lessons we learned going through a, a major trauma like this. So I'm gonna divide it, the first half are, are practical lessons that we learned, and then the second half will be the hashkafic ideas that we learned from this. There was a, a Danish study that was done, a fascinating study that was done. They took 50,000 women, I'm sorry, they took 50,000 couples, and they measured their happiness as a couple from the beginning of their infertility journey until the end of their journey, wherever it ended. So 50,000 couples in Denmark, they tracked them over the time period from the beginning of their journey until the end, seeing how their, how their marriage was along each of these steps and they found two incredible conclusions. The first thing they realized was that more than 50% of the couples were no longer married by the end. More than half of the couples going through infertility treatments could not handle the treatment, and they were torn apart. But of the less than 50% that did remain together, almost all of them said that their marriage got to a level that it could never have gotten to prior to that struggle. And what the study showed people was that whenever there's a massive trauma, it doesn't have to be infertility, it could be anything in your life, it's really something that is an opportunity. It can either be something that will tear apart the relationships you have, or it can be something that you can use to get through together and strengthen your relationship and know that we together are able to overcome this. And when a person recognizes how significant an impact something like this or any trauma has on their relationship, it gives them an incredible defense mechanism against all the issues that tend to occur. There's actually, this happens all the time when, when couples, when I counsel couples, so for some reason the way Hashem made marriages, almost never, in fact I don't know ever, do couples process things the same way. Almost unheard of. I don't think I've ever had a couple that both the husband and the wife wanted to process trauma the same way. So in our personal relationship with my wife and I, every single time anything happened, I was super optimistic. It's okay this failed, it's gonna work out next time, over and over and over and over and over. My wife, after the first time, she said, you know, it's not happening. It's not gonna happen, and if it does, we'll, I'll get excited then. And to deal with that in any relationship, whatever types of differences there are, if you don't speak through it, if you don't figure out what works best for each of you, then it will really tear apart the relationship. But if you figure out how you each process things, then instead of letting it tear away at that relationship, it can actually help build it and help the couple realize that, you know what, we may process things differently, we may have to go through this in different ways, but we're gonna do that together. 
So that was one lesson we learned that was incredibly powerful is how significant the impact of any trauma is on the people that are close to us, not just ourselves. Another thing we learned that was very interesting is how important it is to self-advocate. We live in a world that is becoming more and more and more selfish. And because of that, when we go to any meeting, any clinic, any doctor, we're likely going to get the opinion that is best from their perspective. And very often, not necessarily gonna even listen to any outside opinion. And because of that, we each know ourselves the best. And we have to be able to say, you know what? I don't wanna do that method. I want to try something else. Can we try something else? And we had a crazy story. We'll never actually know what ended up happening. But after our first failed transfer, so I went for this meeting. I, met down, I sat down with this doctor, and I said to him, I said, are we going to do anything different? We just went through this, didn't have any results, and I think it makes sense that we should try something different if we're going to do this again. And he said to me, nah, everything's fine. We'll do it again. I'm sure it'll work out. It's going to be great. And what I did was I called up, at that point I'd already developed a big network of doctors I was close with, and I called up a different doctor, it happens to be this Dr. Danny Shapiro, from the beginning, the one who was too busy, he's someone I've gotten very close with, called him up and I said, can you do me a favor, can you review our medical records? Now, does anyone want to guess how many pages are in medical records from three years of IVF? No guesses? Oh man, you're pessimistic. <laughs> so there were, there were about 96 pages, I think. So I sent him this 96 page file and he calls me back three days later. He went through this 96 page file and he said, everything looks good except for one thing. He said, for whatever reason, your doctor never treated for a very specific bacteria. And he said, the way this bacteria plays out, there's zero way that it would have any symptoms. The only thing it does is it can impact fertility. So a woman can have it her whole life and it could make no difference, or it could be the reason why a woman's infertile and has no other symptoms. So I said, okay, great, how do we treat that? So he said, it's very simple, it's a three week um, process of antibiotics. I said, okay, great. He said, okay, ask your doctor to prescribe it, and this way hopefully you can uh, dot that I and know that you're hopefully have everything set up. So I call up our doctor and I say, hey, Dr. Perlo, can you, um, prescribe this medication. And he was furious. He said, what? How'd you hear about this? What are you asking other people? You don't trust me? How could you come to me for my opinion if you don't even trust me? This whole long speech. And he said, you don't need it. I'm telling you, you don't need it. You're totally fine. There's no need. Don't worry about it. You're gonna be, you're gonna be pregnant soon, no problem. So what we did was I called up Dr. Shapiro and I actually had him prescribe the medication. And he prescribed the medication and my wife took the medication for three weeks, and the next time we did a transfer, we were pregnant. Now, we'll never know, there's no way to know if a person has the bacteria or not, but what it showed us was that in life, there are many occasions where we need to be willing to say, you know what, you as the doctor may suggest that, you as whatever it is in your role may suggest that, but I know myself, and I know that for me, I need to try something different. And in anything you're struggling with, if you're not willing to say, I'm going to stand up for myself, then unfortunately in the world we live in, you're going to get trampled. And that was another very important lesson that we learned. The third lesson we learned on the practical side was something we learned just through interaction, but it's actually a very famous study on it as well. There's a, a very famous social scientist named James Pennebacher who did a study 
on the impact of sharing our struggles with other people. And they found that telling someone else about what you're going through, regardless of who the person is, you can go into a supermarket in a city you don't know anyone, and you just tell the cashier, hey, I'm struggling with X. It was proven to help the person struggling get through their challenge. And there's no, it's not necessarily a logical process, but the, the point was that it showed that being willing to talk about it made it easier to get through. And in our own journey, we saw this very clearly because in the beginning, we didn't tell anyone. We didn't tell parents, siblings, nobody. And then as we realized this was going to be a much longer journey than we had originally hoped, we slowly started telling people. And then we started talking to people who had been through it and asking them what their experience was and asking friends who didn't have children what they were going through. And we saw a marked difference between the beginning of our journey when it was just us against the world feeling so isolated to the later part of our journey where we were still part of the fabric of a community just going through a struggle. And it's an important thing, no matter what you're struggling with, to, be, to know who in your life to share with. Obviously, that doesn't mean you make a, a public announcement to everyone you meet because we all know that there are people who don't handle being told things well. There are people who say things that are less than intelligent, that are not encouraging, and then there are people who we know who hopefully we've determined we can share things with. But it was a very important lesson that we learned about the idea of sharing with others what we're going through. Now, I want to switch gears for a second to the, the hashkafic side of things. Going through a challenge as a Jew, seeing how could this be, especially in this specific field where the struggle is literally a mitzvah that we're supposed to do. So on the one hand, Hashem tells us, you have a mitzvah to have children. And on the other hand, we're trying and it's not happening, which is a very, very difficult challenge from a hashkafic perspective. So, first of all, one of the things that we realized, which is, so we'll segue into the Ashkafic side because it's also practical, is that there are an incredibly large amount of organizations and resources in the Frum community that are meant to help people. And in the beginning, it sounds crazy because many of us probably know all of them, but going through the journey in the moment, we didn't realize half of these organizations, A-Time, Bone Olam, all these things that we all assume, oh, everyone knows about that. There are these big organizations everyone hears of. Yeah, we had heard of it, but I don't know. Is it, do we, people just call them and they help you? I don't know. Maybe. I don't want to call them and tell them what I'm going through. And because of that, we actually did not use any organizations except one small local one in Atlanta for the entire time until the very end when we started realizing that they're, they're meant to be used. And that is something that is, is so important to realize that these organizations exist, these resources exist. And the other thing is leaning on Rabbanim. The, the amount of chizik we got from the Rabbanim we spoke to, Rav Yitzchak Berkowitz, Rav Shmuel first, the people who, the gedolim who really understood and felt our pain was far greater than almost anything that we gained from any other source of advice or anything like that. And it's important to remember that, that the community has these resources. Now, as far as the actual hashkafa, there's a, a story that's said with the Chubina Rav that he had his watch and he was wearing it and he's walking on the street and his watch falls off. And he bends down to pick up his watch. He looks at it, time stopped. Says, okay, what do you do when your watch stops working? Go to the watchmaker. Goes to the watchmaker and the watchmaker tests it for a few minutes. And he comes back and he says, okay, here it is, it's fine. I just needed a new battery. And Chubina Rav says, a new battery? But so it had enough battery, and because it fell, it lost battery? Why should the watch falling impact the battery life? 
And the watchman said, you have to realize how batteries work. When the battery gets low, it has a base level, the lowest level where it can just cruise for a very long time. But as soon as it gets any jolt, any bump, now it has to restart. It doesn't have enough energy to restart. So when it falls, it needed a new battery. And the Tribuna Rav said that that's really the same for so many of us in our own lives. That so many of us, our connection with Hashem, our Amuna, is like that base level of that battery that we have enough dose left, a little bit of juice left from back when we were stronger in our Amuna, and it's okay while things are flat. And while everything's good, we're just stagnant. And that base level of Amuna is there, and it continues to go. But as soon as there's that bump, as soon as there's that jolt, it can't get restarted again. And that's why so many of us, when we have a sudden trauma, a sudden challenge that comes up in our life, we don't know how to get up. How do I get up and deal with this? Because suddenly that battery that was on low on cruise suddenly got jolted and doesn't have enough juice to get started up again. So how do we deal with that? How do we get the juice back up? What can we think about to help us when we're struggling? So I imagine that all of us are familiar with, a, with backseat drivers. Am I right? Everyone here has seen a backseat driver? If you have not seen one, one thing you can do is you can go down to the south, to Atlanta, and bring a group of young professionals to Manhattan for a Shabbaton and you will learn everything you need to learn about backseat drivers. I've done this twice. <laughs> but one thing that's interesting is, has anyone here ever encountered a backseat pilot? Nobody? Does anyone know why? Why do we never see a backseat pilot? You don't think you can do it better. Excellent. The reason is because there's nothing that we can do about it. You see, when we're in a car and there's someone driving, so I know how to drive, and he's not turning the way he should. So we tell him everything. Stop, don't do that. Turn, you're turning too fast, too slowly, too fast. But when we're in the back of a plane and there's turbulence, what are we going to do? We're going to go knock on the cop. Hey, pilot, you're, you're, you're not doing that right. Slow down, go faster. We don't know how a plane is supposed to work. We don't know how it's going to get us to our destination. So that's why we don't offer anything. And it's a very powerful muscle for life. When we go through life, we like to think of it as Hashem is our driver. And we're sitting in the back, and suddenly Hashem makes that quick turn. And how'd this happen? Hashem, that's not for me. Don't do that. I don't want this. And we forget that when Hashem is in the front and control, Hashem is like that pilot. We don't know what's best for us. We're going to tell Hashem, oh, no, that's not good for me. It's like we're in the back of the plane. It's turbulent. It may not be comfortable, but we're going to start figuring out what should be done differently. (laughs) Of course not. And in the moment, it's very difficult. But when you get to the point and you acknowledge that the same way that at the end of the day on that plane, we do sit there and there's nothing we can do about it. And we go through with it and we get to our destination. The same way we have to realize that Hashem is like that pilot who's going to get us to our destination. It may have turbulence, but we have to realize that's how it's going to get us to our destination. And I want to conclude with an incredible story. There was a city in New Jersey that was building a development. Now, it's funny because when I go out, whenever I go out west to speak to these really out-of-town places, so inevitably, whenever I say this, I hear two people whisper, I wonder if it's that place, Lakewood, (laughs) every time. (laughs) So there was this city in New Jersey that was building this development. And the way they were building it was that every single property was a cookie-cutter model. So every house had their lamppost here, mailbox here, the tree here, everything exactly the same, the entire development. And a few months after the development was completed, 
Hurricane Sandy came through. This was a few years ago. Hurricane Sandy comes through and destroys this community. Every house is knocked down, trees everywhere. It's a complete wreck. And the city sends out the damage assessors. And they send out the damage assessors, and they see everything's a mess, but they notice that a few trees are still standing tall. And they say, how could this be? How could the hurricane knock everything over except for these few trees? And they start studying the building and the architectural plans and everything about this development, and they realize an incredible thing. When the housing development had been built, a few of the trees had been misplaced. And instead of being placed within the distance of the sprinkler systems, a few of the trees were a little beyond where the sprinkler would reach. And if you think about it for a minute, from the tree's perspective, the tree is thinking, Hashem, why are you doing this to me? You're going to tease me? That sprinkler's right there and all the other trees get watered? And I don't have any water? How can you do that? But for anyone who's an expert on trees, what does a tree do when it doesn't have enough water? It starts strengthening its roots. It looks inward and starts sending its roots deeper and deeper and deeper. And when a hurricane comes and all those trees who had been watered naturally and never had to strengthen their roots, the hurricane knocks them flying. But the trees that had to strengthen themselves and the trees that had to say, you know what, I don't have any water, I need to work on this on my own, they were the ones that when that hurricane came through, they stood erect, no problem. And in life, it's the same exact thing. We can go through a struggle, and we can say, this is not fair. I'm not going to get through this. What am I going to do? Or we can recognize that whenever we have a struggle, it's an opportunity to look within. How can I strengthen myself? How can I strengthen my own emuna, my own relationships? Send my roots deeper. And if we can do that, then hopefully we can get to a point where when that hurricane comes through and all those friends we were jealous of who had it so easy get knocked over, we can say, you know what? We know how to handle this. And we can stand proud and erect. And I just want to end with one last message. Obviously, my, my goal here, there were several, several goals here. I hope everyone gained from it. But obviously, during the Sphira, we're at a time where we know that the Talmud Rabbi Akiva, they passed the Shlonag, Ukavad, Zebazah, they didn't treat each other properly. And I hope that at a minimum, if everyone can take the idea that hopefully to be more sensitive about other people not knowing what anyone is going through, we never truly know what's going on in someone else's home, and appreciating that we need to recognize that and care about everyone, that Amir Tashem, the Gula, will come so much quicker to all of us. Does anyone have any questions? I usually take, get a ton of questions. For anyone who's, who's shy about questions, I usually get tons of them. And if not, you can come over after. I'm not in a rush to go anywhere. Okay. You want to talk about the, the, percentage, the percentage of people that actually struggle, but just to give, a, give some clarity on, on Yeah, definitely. So first of all, if anyone wants, I do have the book with me. If anyone wants to buy, you can. The book goes into, obviously, a lot more detail. But the, 